book of Acts, you see how they start to transpire. Everything's like, well, here's Acts 28, you know, here's Philippi, here's what's going on in Philippi. So that's how you put everything together. Understand that the Bible is an interwoven message system, so you can't, don't have every bit in one specific book. You have to look at the entirety of the 66 books to understand what's going on. The theme in the book of Philippians is joy in Christ. We see that in chapter 1, verse 26. Now, some more vital stats. <clears throat> Paul and his companion began the church in uh, Philippi on his second missionary journey in Acts 16, 11 to 40. This was the first church established in the European continent. The Philippian church had uh, sent a gift. It was by one of his members and to be delivered to Paul. And you see that in chapter 4, verse 18. And Paul was a, a Roman prison at the time. Now understand, when he was in a Roman prison, there was two floors. So there was a floor where people can go visit and there was a hole. Within that hole is where they did everything. If you get what I'm picking them up and putting them down, right? Literally everything. So there was no sewage system at that time in prisons. So you know how prisons now, they have bathrooms in every cell? Yeah, not the case. So imagine going to visit Paul in prison. Imagine living in prison. <clears throat> so he wrote this letter to thank them for their gift and to encourage them to their, in their faith. And the key verse is found in the last chapter in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. So that's our vital stats. Now, Philippi. Where is Philippi? Remember, the European continent. And you should see there's Philippi. So, just so you have an idea where it was in, uh, near Macedonia. And before we jump in, there is an interesting uh, framework to this letter, specifically in chapter 1, that we should acknowledge. So the opening section, uh, you have to understand, in the ancient world, there were four elements included in each letter, and each letter included the author, the recipients, the greeting, and thanksgiving slash prayer. So Paul actually follows this fourfold pattern, but not as a prepackaged thing. Not as a, well, this is the Greek way of doing things, but he made it very Christocentric. So it was Christ-exalting categories. So first, not clicking. There we go. So first, we see that Christ is exalted as the key understanding and the identity of the Christian ministers like Paul and Timothy as bondservants of Jesus Christ. So as they're excited about being bondservants, now as a slave, because that's what a bondservant means, it means slave, and as a slave, it encompasses every aspect of your life. Your life is servitude, and that's all it was. So Paul is saying as a bondservant, he is all about service, and that's his entire life. And he included Timothy in that. And second, this was written, so you have the author's, their identity, and now it's to all the saints who are in Christ Jesus. So this is written to all the saints. And the third, 
Christ in Jesus. So you have grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is exalted as the high point in history and holiness as Paul gives thanks and prayers for the purity of the Philippians. And then we see filled with fruits of righteousness. It comes, which comes through Christ in verse 11. And then go back to verse 10. You see the day of Christ. So in the light of the final day of Christ. So you have Philippians 1, 2, 10, and 11. So then you can see the structure of the letter and of the first chapter. So now, as we move forward, our first point is the salutation. So we're going to go back to verse 1. And the first sub-point is people. So once again, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and the deacons. So once again, we see the bondservants, they're slaves, they're serving, informs every aspect of their existence. They're slaves in Christ, which shows this upside down concept of Christianity because the world says, what happens? There's a whole bunch of slaves, right? And that is the bottom of the barrel. But no, if you're a slave to Christ, you're actually more towards the top. Because who was the ultimate slave? Thank you, Dr. Falzerano. <laughs> Jesus was the ultimate slave because he did not come to serve, but he didn't come not to be served, but to serve. So, now, and no one would celebrate this in the ancient world. Now imagine, would you, would you celebrate being a slave or a servant? Like nowadays, would you? All right, how many people want to be a janitor when they grow up? How many people want to be a um, person that cleans homes for people? How many people want to be a nurse's assistant working in hospice? Not a lot of people. Hey, listen, yeah, I want to be a slave. I want to be a servant, right? Well, hey, listen, this is what I'm talking about. Most people don't want to do that stuff because it's dirty jobs, right? It's rough. Well, that's what it is to be a bondservant, to do the least, serve one another. So... Christ taught his disciples to appreciate the true greatness of servitude, especially as seen in his own example. He came to serve. Christ is the ultimate slave. Now, the recipients of the letter, all the saints who were in Jesus Christ, the emphasis in on all, not some, not a few, but all. The importance of the unity, a theme that will reappear in this letter. You'll see unity, consistency in the book of Philippians. To the Philippians, our saints, through union with Christ, teaches them to treasure their Christian identity above their earthly identity. Hey, so what's, who are you? Most people say, hey, I'm, um, I'm a nurse, I'm a teacher, I'm this, I'm that. It always goes down to their occupation. Even sometimes, hey, listen, 
I'm a dad, I'm a mom, I'm a brother, I'm a sister, that still does not show your identity. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a saint, you are a child of God. You're adopted, grafted into the fold. And we're going to go through that a little bit later, but now you see, towards the end, you see bishops and deacons. Now, the inclusion of bishops, which is better translated overseers, but because this is the New King James Version, so you'll see bishops, it means overseer. And deacons as the specific recipients of the letter, which just stands out. No other Pauline letter includes a reference to church in its opening, which is interesting. Now, overseers is synonymous with the concept of elders. The Bible stresses that it is Christ who is the chief shepherd of the flock who exercises authoritative oversight of his churches by giving them to the under-shepherds to watch over the flock, the elders who are under-shepherds. And you see that in 1 Peter 5, 1 through 4. And then deacons refers to the office in the church that aims to meet the practical needs of the church. But we're not going to go through overseers and deacons today. Next up point, you have peace. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now the greeting here itself in verse 2 is a standard in uh, Pauline letters. Now the Greek greeting for grace and, the Hebrew, and if you think about the Hebrew greeting for peace, this is interesting because now the New Testament was written in what? Greek, right? It's Greek. But who was Paul? He was a Jew, right? Roman citizen, yet he knew Greek and all that stuff. Which kind of brings that whole concept of peace and shalom. And they're not only combined here, but they are infused with the Christian content. The qualities both of Greeks and Jews, what they wanted from life was grace and peace. And now we're offered to them in Christ. Now Paul usually stresses the fatherhood of God in his greetings because the saints have become children of God through adoption. Now here's my one cross reference today because I know there's a lot we're going to go through. But I had to include this in Romans chapter 8 verses 14 to 17. For as many are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God, for you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but to, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Now you have a loving father who cares for them and is loved deeply in their lives. Now, further in verse 2, you see Lord Jesus Christ I do want to point this out because I think this is very important that it's not merely coming from Christ, but it's our Lord Jesus Christ. There is a great emphasis in the 
uh, in the Philippians on the exaltation of Christ after he sacrificed himself on a cross. And Paul frequently emphasizes his lordship. This is a very important thing. Lordship or sovereignty over the world. He's in control. He is king. He is divine. He is God. It is used 15 times in this letter. The sacrificial lamb has become the exalted Lord. That's a big deal. Now, number two, you have the surety. And then right under that, you have the praise. So the surety and then the praise. In verses 3 through 5, it says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you, all with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Now, there's three aspects of this prayer. So they're combined here. You have the intercession, thanksgiving, and joy. Intercession, thanksgiving, and joy. And joy, which are all focused on the Philippians, but not that Paul is thankful not only to them. I thank my God. He acknowledges that the gift has actually come from God through the Philippians. So the primary focus is always God. But still, Paul's extremely grateful for the Philippians who have allowed themselves to be used by God to care for his needs. So his inexhaustible joy was grounded in his indestructible confidence in God. So his inexhaustible joy was grounded in his indestructible confidence in God. Paul's in prison telling, hey, be joyful. Hey, it's okay if they persecute you because the Philippian church was dealing with persecution. So, when something happens with your girlfriend or your boyfriend or your wife or your kids or your job, what is he saying? Be what? Joyful. Easier said than done, right? Because we get focused on certain things, right? We get focused on the negative stuff. He is focused on just the joy of Christ. So now you have this praise and now you have a purpose. In verse 6, being confident in this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Now Paul's joy in every situation was based on deep-seated confidence in God. A realization that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. This is why adverse circumstances and sorrows could not discourage the basic joy with which Paul approached life. How do we approach life? Do we approach life like, woe is me? Or do you approach life with absolute joy that God's giving you the ability not only to serve him, but to inherit eternal life? 
We don't deserve that. Paul calls himself the chief of sinners. Paul killed and persecuted Christians. But God redeemed him. And he's grateful for it. And you see that consistently in his life. The Philippian church was dealing with dissension. Many of its members were enduring severe persecution and false teachers were threatening its stability. Sounds like the American church right now. A lot of false teachers out there. Paul totally trusted that the Lord of the universe remained in charge and that he and his love would never desert him. Do you feel like God's ever going to desert you? I have many phone calls. Often, a lot of people say that. God's going to desert them. That's not true, though, because he is God. He is sovereign. And just by his very nature of being eternal, when you have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. Now, we see partakers the Philippians as partakers in verse 7. Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense of the confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. So right off the bat, it is right for me to think of you since I have you in my heart. Paul knew that his, this thought of confidence in the Philippians was right and appropriate because of his personal relationship with them. And the knowledge of their sincere faith in Christ. Now the Greek word here, translated to think, is also translated to feel. It's used by Paul 23 times in the, this letter. The word means more than simply affection or emotion or emotional reaction. It goes deeper. It's showing a special concern for someone's best interest. It's showing this like deep, deep bond. These Philippians had a very special place in Paul's heart. You ever have someone like that? That you, you, you fellowship with someone and you have this, this love for them and it's like more than just like a feeling, oh, I just like the guy or like the girl, whatever the case may be. It's like a deeper feeling of friendship and fellowship and your fellow servants. You ever have that? Well, that's what he's talking about because he fellowshiped with them. He lived with them. He ate with them. He taught them. He's like a spiritual father to them. Very, very tight relationship. Now we see the passion. Further down, verse 8, for God is my witness, how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul separated by his imprisonment from his dear friends in Philippi and experienced intense uh, fellowship with them, and he wanted to be with them. So he called God as his witness to the truth of the statement. Paul's affection for the Philippians was so strong 
that it was deeper than any human emotion. It was the selfless affection of Jesus Christ that Jesus demonstrated himself. The word affection is literally inward parts or viscera, such as the inward parts of an animal sacrifice, the heart, the liver, the kidneys. It conveys these amazingly strong feelings. How could Paul say that he loved the Philippians with the affection of Jesus Christ? Just as Jesus loved them, so Paul loved them. Although Christ is the originator of love, it is expressed through Paul. And he uses men and women to express the love of Christ. We're used as tools for that. That's why we're called ambassadors for Jesus Christ. We're ambassadors to the kingdom. But you see that affection. That's what it is to be a believer. We are to love the church. We are to love each other. Because Christ loved us. Now we see a prayer. This is the first of two prayers that you see in this first chapter. In 9 through 11. And this I pray. That your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So, in verse 9, you see a prayer for growth. In verse 10, for sincerity. In verse 11, for fruitfulness. This three-verse prayer It's a very complicated sentence in Greek. We're not going through it. My Greek is no bueno. (laughs) Saw what I did there? Yeah. Yeah. So it's a threefold structure. You have request, a purpose, and a final result. Their ability to discern should cause them to focus on what really matters to the body of believers. What really matters? We worry about all this other stuff, the American church. It's just stuff. I heard a a preacher say it one time, and he said that when the church started, the Catholic church started, it was about the sacraments. Then when the Reformation happened, it was about the sermon. And now it's about the show. We're... As the American church, the American church is so filled with stuff that we don't need because the first century church had nothing. They met in homes. They were being persecuted. Oh, they were. Imagine you had a bunch of cops run in here and break this thing up. That's how it was. We couldn't do this. We'd be hiding out. I would have like a lookout. (laughs) That's how they were. So the ability to discern should cause them to focus on what really matters. And through discernment, they can see what is best for the lives, sincerity, and pure, not offensive to Christ. Meaning blameless, this constitutes the fruit of righteousness in their lives. Now Paul's prayer is that on the day when Christ returns, he might find them filled with the fruit of righteousness in their lives. 
So we're going to stay on here for just a moment longer. So there's a threefold response here. The blessing of belonging to Christ, the Christ-centered security of our salvation, and glorify God. So we can't rush this verse, these verses, because we can't miss out this, on this monumentous truth of union with Christ. Let us be amazed by the unfathomable blessing of belonging to Christ fully and forever. The feast of Christ is forever a feast that satisfies far more than any few worldly crumbs ever could. Ain't that true? Now you have God-centered security of salvation. This is important. The assurance of your salvation is absolutely important. So let us rejoice. Let us be excited. Let us be joyful in our God-centered security. And it is his work from the first day to the last. That's Philippians 1, 5 through 6. Christian assurance rests not on the Christianness of our Christianity, but on the Godness of God. It's not on the Christianness of Christianity, but on the Godness of God. It's not us. If the power to save does not come from us, then the paralyzing pressure to save ourselves need not oppress us. Assurance of salvation rests not on how strong your grip is on the Father's hand, but how strong his grip is on us. Are you getting the theme? It's not us. Glorify God. Christians exist. I hope you pay attention to this one because the world's going to tell you something different. Christians exist to praise God as pointers to his glory. As preachers and Bible teachers, we are but mouthpieces like signs saying, like John the Baptist who says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Do you notice he just points? He's like, no, go to him. Paul says, it's Christ. It's Christ. It's Christ. And then his disciples were like, well, it's either Paul or Apollos. I have, I'm on Apollos' side. I'm on Paul's side. No, man, I'm on Christ's side. It's about Christ. We live a holy and loving life. Not to point to the work that we do, but to point to the fruit that God grows in us and through us in Christ. People should see the good works and say, what a good God, not what a good person. God's name will be set apart as something to be valued above all else when others can see what he has done for and through his people. People are to see Christ in you. Are you living a life Worthy of that. Number three, the slave. So now we have a plan. 
With Paul, there's always a plan and there's always a problem. Just saying. In verse 12, but I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. This is crazy. This is nuts. Because the world would say it's something other. Paul is in prison. Ah, oh, the gospel's gone. Very much like what happened with Christ. What happened to all the apostles, his disciples? What happened? <laughs> they, they ran, scattered. They thought, oh man, Jesus is, he died on the cross. That was it. When they have hope after his resurrection. So very much how what would happen, you know, Paul went to prison. Paul was like the super apostle. One of the most surprising moments in the whole letter comes when Paul actually declares that his imprisonment has actually advanced the gospel instead of hindering it. Now look, he, he shows the attention here. He draws this. And to, his, to this surprise, a wordplay between things which happened and then furtherance. He acknowledged that his circumstances had advanced the gospel contrary to what would normally expect. You would think, right? Like, you know, you think like whoever you think is the greatest pastor in America. Imagine he went to prison. You'd be like, oh, no. He went down. But no, he furthered the gospel. Now you have a purpose. So you have your plan. You have a purpose now. In verse 13, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. Now Paul explains the first of two ways in which his imprisonment has advanced the gospel to progress. The gospel among non-believers, the gospel has thus advanced because it has become crystal clear that Paul's imprisonment is literally, literally in Christ. Paul makes a profound point. He lives all of life in Christ, including his imprisonment. And now you see the power. Moving down to verse 14. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, having been confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the world, word without fear. See, Paul explains now the second way which his imprisonment has caused the gospel to advance, progress of the gospel among believers. Paul's imprisonment has led to an explosion of evangelism. Boldness to speak the gospel without fear. Now, Paul also clarifies the cause of his evangelistic increase. Now, the confidence in the Lord because of his imprisonment. Now, there's confidence because he was in prison. Now, what's the natural knee-jerk reaction? Would be fear. People would scatter. Persecution would shrink back and people would speak less out of fear. 
The opposite happened. So there's trust in the Lord. It grew as the brothers observes Paul's example to be bold in the gospel and to be a witness in prison. So let's move to our next main point, the strife. Envying in preaching. Envying in preaching. Unfortunately, this happens quite often. Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife. And some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerity, sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains. There are way too many people that want to preach. There's way too many people that want to be pastors. And it scares me. Very, it's very scary. There's a book called Lectures to My Students by Charles Spurgeon. Literally, in the first two to three chapters, he tries to push people away from pastoral ministry and preaching. Because people preach from their own ambition and not sincerity. Not because they're called. And this happened back in the church. But... Paul looked at this as a positive thing, even. So the first group that Paul contends with is preaching the gospel out of envy and strife. Now, the terms are normally found in uh, these vice lists of sinful attitudes. And if you want to take down some Bible verses, the sinful attitudes is in Romans 1, 28 and 29, Galatians 5, 20 to 21, and 1 Timothy 6, 3 through 4. Envy is jealous attitude in which a person wants what another person has and wishes to deprive the other of what they feel they themselves rightfully deserve. Oh yeah. You ever envy? Rivalry describes a result of envy. A decisive spirit that undermines the cohesiveness of the group and causes people to take sides. The result of the two is disunity and strife. Now, I want to explain something. If something, if something tries to separate anyone in the church, right, or to split the church, do you know that person is to be excommunicated? That's called church discipline. So anything that causes even your sin to cause disunity within the church should be cast out of your life. We don't do things for ourselves. We do things to glorify God. And those qualities that will destroy the mission of the church, which according to Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, 20 to 23, it is dependent on the unity of God's people. We are to be unified under Christ. And we have too many arguments. We have, you know, nowadays, what do we have? Hey, are you vaxxed? Are you not vaxxed? Are you masked or unmasked? This is causing strife within the church, and disunity. So this is talking about envying somebody, but it does have an application of disunity. We are to be one in Christ. 
And I'm glad most of you, many of you are here because we're not to forsake the gathering. So now you have encouraged preaching. In 17 to 18, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. The other group of preachers proclaim Christ out of love. In the complete support of Paul and his leadership of the church, many read the goodwill vertically and not just horizontally encompassing the recognition of God's favor towards Paul. Often in Scripture, the concept refers to God's pleasure in a person or thing, and that is likely Paul's trust here. So Paul is rejoicing that someone is preaching in Christ. Now prior to this, if you just look to this slide... He's looking, he's like, well, you know what? The former preached Christ, but he's excited that Christ is preached. Only in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. Christ is preached. So number five, we have salvation, the salvation. Now here's the second prayer within this passage. In verses 18 to 19. What then, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice, for I know that this will return out of my deliverance through your prayer and to supply the Spirit of Jesus Christ. So he knew that some were preaching to build their own reputations taking advantage of Paul's imprisonment, trying to make a name for themselves. Regardless of their motives, Christ is preached. So Paul rejoiced whether from false motives or true motives, Christ is preached. You ever see someone doing something wrong and you start judging them for doing something wrong? How many of you guys are like perfectionists? When someone's doing something wrong, even though they get the job done, do you get upset? Now imagine they were doing something, right, for their own personal benefit, yet they still got the job done. Would you be upset? Probably, right? He's saying, listen, the job's getting done. Christ has preached. Here's something. I usually don't talk about myself, but I'm going I'm to explain something here. I was in the military, right? I was in the Marine Corps. Here's what the job was. The mission always came first. It came before people. Now, we cared about people because there was always danger going on missions. The mission comes first. The objective has to be completed. It doesn't matter how it's completed, really. If Christ is preached... I'm saying from a very conservative perspective. I'm not saying from a very extreme perspective like 
you're just straight like, you know, you're smoking weed and talking about Christ. No, that doesn't work that way. No, it doesn't work. You're wasted. doesn't work that way. I'm, I'm, I want to clear. I'm talking about if someone has false pretenses and they preach Christ. Okay, because I, I saw some heads. I was like, make sure. Just in case. Just in case. Right? But now Paul, he wouldn't condone, nor does he, God excuse, their motives, but we should be glad if God uses their message regardless of their motives. Paul had no concern for his own reputation or success. He had dedicated his entire life to glorifying God. And that is the life we are to live. He understands that God was being glorified even as he sat in chains. And Paul could rejoice and had been able to rejoice during his two years in prison. He could rejoice that good results came from Preachers with bad motives and would continue to rejoice no matter how long he would remain in prison or how long he would live. Paul knew that he had happened, that happened would end in his deliverance. I have a quote here from Diedrich Bonhoeffer. Does anyone know who Diedrich Bonhoeffer is? Not Jay. <laughs> agent during World War II. He was a preacher too. He was a theologian also. And he spoke up against Hitler. I think he died at the age of 36. Tried to assassinate Hitler. Oh yeah, he was trying to assassinate Hitler. Yeah! <laughs> well, he was a theologian. Yeah, he taught underground theology classes, but he died very early. I think, it was 30, I think he died at 36. But this is what he says. That is the way it is in the church. It never lives by its deeds. I'll repeat that. It never lives by its deeds, not even by its deeds of love. Rather, it lives by what it cannot see and yet believes. It sees affliction and believes deliverance. I love these quotes because they kind of sting you in the right place. Now, the purpose. Verse 20. According to my earnest expectations and hope, and in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul reflects momentarily on the fact that his trial is coming to completion and prays for courage to face whatever God might dictate. His only desire was for Christ to be praised and the gospel to progress in this world and did not want to get in the way of either goal. What are your motives? What are your motives? Are your motives about yourself, furthering yourself, or furthering the gospel of Christ? The progress of the gospel was everything to him. He had no idea what was going to happen in the immediate future. This earnest expectation of hope is referring to the intense longing for a certain event to take place was for the 
courage to face the possible death. Imagine you're about to face death. I'll tell you a story about facing death. There was a, a pastor, and it was in Africa. I believe it was Nigeria, but don't quote me on that one. But what this pastor had to go through, his entire family was about to be buried alive. And then he was going to be killed afterwards. He had to deny Christ. Didn't deny Christ. And God gave his family grace and mercy throughout all that thing. And they were killed. But they stood strong for Christ. I notice people in impoverished countries tend to love Christ a little bit more. Trust Christ a little bit more. Do more for Christ. I'm not saying go out and join 10,000 ministries. I'm saying love Christ. Serve Christ. Serve your, your neighbors. But give everything to him. Because here's the thing. We're here for but a moment. In ministry, what do you think we see all the time? How many calls we get? Oh, this person died. This person died. This person's in the hospital. You know people call us for bad things? That's what they call us for, bad things. Someone died. That's usually what happens. Someone's in the hospital. Ask any pastor. We get called for the bad things. And you start to see, understand your own mortality, especially with what's going on. Some people are getting sick. Some people are having issues. Some people are getting older. And they're coming across their own mortality. This is a real life situation. Now this is like a, you know, we call it natural death. There's nothing natural about death. But he's coming face to face with, he could die. He's saying, be joyful. He didn't mind dying, but he feared not dying well. He states this desire negatively first that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but then positively so that now, as always, Christ will be magnified or exalted in my body. Dying well. Now a promise. Probably one of the most famous Bible verses. Philippians 1.21. For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, we could spend hours on this one, but we won't. So, now you see Paul presenting his true feelings with an abrupt and powerful sentence. Translate, literally, to live, Christ, to die, gain. Each part is filled with so much Theological death. Paul expected to live, but the totality of life in his word, world he knew was summed up in Christ. Nothing else mattered. To understand this, we must go back to his early self-depictions of Christ as a slave, a prisoner, and a prisoner meaning that he belonged to Jesus completely. 
Paul had been captured by Christ and had no life outside of him. Now, the primary image in the prison letters in Colossians, Philemon, Ephesians, and Philippians is that everything Paul was and did is in Christ, depicting his union with Christ and his membership in the body of Christ. The church, Christ was the sphere of his life and everything that had meaning or value was found in Christ. So, for me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, remember I said there's always a prayer and a problem and a plan for Paul? That's usually what happens. Every Pauline epistle, you do see a problem. <laughs> now, here's a problem. In 22 to 24, it says, But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor, yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell, for I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. Now, these verses have set up a very important question. If Christ would be magnified both by life and death, which option should Paul prefer? If Christ allowed Paul to live, it would mean further fruitful labor under the lordship of Christ. But if Christ chose death for Paul, he would depart and be with Christ in eternity. In blissfulness, in perfection, no more sorrow, no more tears. Therefore, all things being equal, though, Paul clearly expresses his preference for death as far better. In fact, Paul piles on the comparatives to intensify the sense of how much better it would be with Christ. The literal translation of the phrase is, of far better is much more better. I know you English people got really upset right there, but it's much more better. <laughs> All things are not equal, though. See, when Paul factors in the needs of the Philippians, the scale is tilted toward remaining in the flesh because it is necessary for their good. We move on to the praise. We're almost there. Verses 25 and 26. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you. Hmm. Now, Paul's drawing a conclusion here. Regarding his imprisonment, he says he's coming to him again. Paul's entire focus was the true sovereignty of God. That who would either take him to his true home in heaven or send him back to the Philippians and uh, the other congregations. Now, Paul's language here is very strong. He is convinced, he is confident, but not by the legal arguments made by Roman courts over the last few years. It is the logic of divine mission that drives the future so he does not 
think he might be freed, but he knows he will be freed. He's going to be free either way, isn't he? The die is gain. But he's freed from prison. He gets to live for Christ. Imagine having that outlook on life. I'm in prison. I'm on death row. I could die and be with Christ. Live in eternity with him. Or I'm going to be free to go share the gospel. Talk about joy in all things. Now, number six, we have the suffering. Worthy in conduct. In verse 27, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So whether that so that whether I come to see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind striving together for the for the faith of the gospel. Let your conduct be worthy of the gospel. Now, Another way you can do it, behave as citizens worthy of the gospel. Law-abiding citizen, that concept. Christ-abiding citizen. Gospel-abiding citizen. This verse is the thesis statement of the entire letter here, though. It is the first imperative of the letter, and all subsequent imperatives serve to flush out what it means to behave as citizens worthy of the Gospels. Now, look at the adverb right at the beginning. It says, only adds a note of sharp singularity so that the command is even more of a focal point to be worthy of the Gospel. Now, what does worthy mean? There's some explanation that's in here. Signifies something that fits with the weight and worth of its standard of reference. With the weight and worth of the standard of reference. Paul elsewhere speaks of living worthy of a Christian calling in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Of the Lord in Colossians 1.10. And of God, 1 Thessalonians 2.12. In this passage, the standard reference or measuring rod is the gospel. The gospel is the gold standard for the Christian life. And as much as it's worth weight govern the Christian life, the gospel becomes the shared story that unites all Christians from all times and provides a reference point for all of their thinking and living. It's not Google. It's not YouTube. It's not any social media. Your standard of living is based on the gospel. Conduct worthy of the gospel is above all conduct that, prom that promotes the gospel. Now, worthy to suffer. 
in our last few verses, 28 to 30, it says, And not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation, and that from God, for to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here is in me. The passage provides the reasoning behind Paul's claim in verse 28 that the Philippians' life together missed suffering is evidence of their salvation. Paul presents suffering for Christ as itself proof of grace from God, connecting his experience of the suffering with the Philippian church. Paul writes only vaguely about the suffering, but in verse 30, it may suggest that the Philippian church is enduring the same persecution that Paul is going through. And what Paul's imprisonment describes. We are to live worthy of the gospel, worthy of repentance, worthy of Christ, because we are citizens of heaven. If we are citizens of heaven, we are to represent heaven and represent Christ. So now, as we move to our application, apply now because now you apply. Very simple. So the first application is making the most. So Paul knew that heaven would be better from this life, and he looked forward to it, but his obedience was to Christ. You would work and serve as Christ saw fit. We must avoid two errors here. To work and to lose sight of the ultimate home with Christ, that's the first error. And now the second error is to desire only to be with Christ and to neglect the work he has called us to do. So you can't just focus, hey, I want to be with, my, be with Christ and neglect everything else. And you can't just keep working and serving and lose sight of the kingdom of God. You can't. So you have to keep one eye on the kingdom of God and one eye on your work. Because that's the ultimate goal. Always have the concept of the end in mind. So we must work hard now, live at our peak, serve, and love those around us, help the church grow, heal someone's wounds, write a good poem, clean up your yard, do our best at school. But we always know that there's a better day coming. Always with one eye toward heaven, Paul made the most out of each day. So should we. Whatever you do, you do it to the best of your ability because that's what we're called to do. I know it gets tiring to do everything at 100% capacity, right? Doesn't it get tiring? Like, if, let's say you're in school, right? You're doing your papers at 100%. You want the best grades. But God calls us to just live a life of excellence. But it's excellence to emulate Christ. He lived a life of excellence. So shouldn't we? 